Take that mask off. I've got to rearrange. Uh, if you uh, have your Bibles or your Scripture journal, go ahead and open it up to Colossians chapter 3. I'm going I'm to read starting in uh, 17 of chapter 3, and we're going to go down to uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. So Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the, in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Work to live not live to work. Work to live, not live to work. These words were shared with me by a supervisor at the very beginning of my career after I uh, graduated from college. Um, he was probably 20 years my senior. And he was sharing this as a way to encourage me, as a way to help me. I think he saw me very clearly. Work to live, not live to work. He saw me seeking to fulfill his every request, willing to work whatever hours were required or requested, and maybe even a few more, eager to move up and advance, eager to be seen as valuable to the company. His words were intended to provide me perspective on why I was working. Work in my career to provide for what I needed to live, but not to devote my life to work at the expense of actually living. Now this isn't biblical advice. It wasn't shared to me in a biblical context or intended to be biblical in any way. I think he told me this out of a genuine desire to care for me, I think this was advice that I would later find out that he had come to through trial and some amount of regret. His first marriage had ended in divorce, and that was something he attributed mostly to being too career-focused and neglecting his family. At this point in his life, he was remarried, and he had a new little girl, and he was very determined to not make the same mistakes again. I found this advice helpful in some ways as I 
continue to battle against finding balance of work and not work, being at home. But it's, it's incomplete. It doesn't fully espouse a biblical view of work. And this morning, we're going to study what Colossians tells us about the right way to view work. What does the Bible have to tell us about how we are to work? So, just as way of setting context, we've been um, in this section of Scripture for quite a while now, if you've been keeping track. Uh, but all of these verses, 18 to 4.1, are really uh, examples that are flowing out of verse 17 of chapter 3. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So, so far we've looked at marriage in the name of the Lord. What does it look like to be a husband in the name of the Lord? What does it look like to be a wife in the name of the Lord? Last week, Matt shared on being a child in the name of the Lord and being a parent in the name of the Lord. And this week, we're going to look at work in the name of the Lord. What does it mean to work in the name of the Lord? Before we do that, I think it's helpful to look at what is a biblical definition of work. We get tied up nowadays in work being about your career. And we ask, you know, you meet someone new and you might say, what do you do? And that's really a question about where they work, but in a lot of ways I think it tells us when we answer it how we describe ourselves and how we see our value and what we do for a living or do in our jobs. But I'm not sure that's an accurate description of uh, what work is from a biblical point of view. So when we want to look at this, we go back, and we're going to go all the way back to Genesis. So if you have your Bible, you can flip back to Genesis 1. We're going to look at three passages in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we're going to have them up on the screen as well. So we're going to start uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. So Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I love that creeping thing that creeps. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish and the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, now flip to uh, chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and keep it. So we've looked at creation, man's created, and God immediately gives him the command of what he is to do. He is to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And then later we see he puts the man in the garden 
and gives him a very specific task to do in the Garden of Eden, to work it and to keep it. The last thing to look at here in Genesis is uh, in chapter 3, verse 17. And this is, this is the curse, right? So we have the fall, apple eaten, God disobeyed. God comes and he pronounces the curse. And this is what he says to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So what do we learn about work here in Genesis? I think a couple of key things as we look to define what work is. First, work is a good thing. Work is not part of the curse. Work existed before the curse. The curse is the pain and the futility and the tired, sweaty work that we must then do within it. I think we also see that work is God's plan. Immediately following creation, he sets Adam to work. There isn't anything else he tells Adam other than to get to work. I also think there's an aspect that we can get very confused about, about provision. There's a clear connection here between work being part of God's plan to provide for us. But it's more than that. Work is, uh, work is to bring order to God's creation. We're there to govern it, to subdue it, have dominion, to bring order. I was pointed to this helpful definition in a book by Tim Keller. Uh, it's called Every Good Endeavor. And so here's the quote. We're con- we're, we are continuing God's work of forming, filling, and subduing. Whenever we bring out of chaos, whenever we draw out creative potential, whenever we elaborate and unfold creation be- beyond where it was found, we are following God's pattern. So what is work? In one sense, work is bringing order out of chaos. That's what we are called to do when God says, subdue the earth and have dominion over it. We are to govern it. We are to have order. So think about your life and the work that you do, whether it's at your job or at home or anywhere else. How do you bring order out of chaos? When I clean my kitchen after my family of nine has eaten dinner, That is my attempt to bring order out of chaos because I assure you that kitchen is nothing but chaos. Whenever I change my daughter's dirty diaper, that is chaos and it needs order. (laughs) When I'm studying a new topic, when I'm trying to learn something new, concepts and knowledge, they're, they're chaos in my head until they're brought into order and I have understanding. As an engineer, when I build something, I'm taking parts and components that are currently stashed in different bins or not put together, and I'm bringing them together to make something useful. I'm taking chaos, and I'm bringing order. When I fix a leaking toilet at my home, 
and it is causing massive chaos. I'm bringing order from that chaos. So when we talk about work this morning, this applies not only at your job where you may be paid. This applies when you are volunteering. This applies when you are working around your house, when you're doing all of the work that you do during your day, parenting and uh, uh, cleaning and everything else that you do in your home. If you're a student and you're studying, whether you're alone studying or you're in a class studying, that is work. And what we have to talk about today applies to every single one of those circumstances. I'm going to turn back to Colossians. And before I get into kind of the main part of what I want to say this morning, I want to address one other thing. You probably noticed that verses 20 through 22 to 25 are addressed to bond servants. And depending on your translation, it might just say servants, or it may even say slaves. And then verse 4-1 is addressed to masters, which is the earthly masters of those bond servants or slaves. How do we understand this? Why, why is this here, and why is it addressed to bond servants, slaves, masters? I think very clearly and upfront it should be said, this should never be understood to be God's acceptance or, or approval of slavery or ownership of people in any way. We see throughout the Bible that is not his design and not his plan. I think this is an example where Paul, God through Paul, is addressing a reality of the culture that he's writing to uh, that is against his imperfect design but is a reality that needs to be addressed and apparently needs to be addressed in this particular church in Colossae. Further, it should be noted that in verse 25, that little tag at the end that seems a little out of place in some ways, and there is no partiality, is really important. I think what, what he's trying to say here is these rules, the, these uh, encouragements that he has on work These don't apply differently to masters or to slaves. This is the same. There's no partiality. There is no difference in God's kingdom between slave or master. This this can be seen as God flattening or eliminating, rejecting the hierarchies that we see on earth. So he's saying whether rich or poor, weak or strong, powerful or powerless... All will stand before God in judgment. And all are intended to hear these commands and obey them. God promises reward for the powerless here and judgment for the powerful who abuse their authority. So where does that leave us in 2020? I feel very comfortable in saying none of us here are slaves. And praise God, none of us own slaves. What Paul has to say, however, very much still applies to us. As I said, the principles apply equally across earthly power structures. From the lowest rung to the highest rung. So therefore, clearly, it applies everywhere in between. For there is no partiality. 
So there, this still applies to us. Whether you're the CEO or you're working in the mailroom, whether you're paid for your work or you're volunteering, if it's your primary vocation or you're studying at school or working in your home, what God has to say to us about work still very much applies. So, three points that I want to make this morning to give us God's perspective on work. First one is why we work. The second one is how we work. And the third one is for whom we work. Why we work, who, how we work, and for whom we work. So, let's get started with why we work. From what we've read in Genesis, I think it's very clear the main reason why we work is God made us to work. As soon as Adam was made, as we said, God set him to work. And we know that we are image bearers of God. He makes us in his image. And God is a working God. Right before what we read in Genesis, is God doing work? Is God creating? Is God uh, at work? So it shouldn't be a surprise that those made in his image are also intended to work. God has given us, uh, made us to work, and he has given us work to do. He has given us a planet, and he has told us to subdue it, to tend it to dress it, and to cultivate it. As I said, God is connected work to provision. It seems that it is his principal mechanism through which he provides provision for us, but that shouldn't be seen as a restraint on his ability to provide provision in other ways. Nor should we see provision as the main motivation for working. The reason we work is God made us to work. And actually, in verse 24 here in Colossians, we see more motivation. And it is not earthly provision. It's provision, inheritance, and reward in the Lord. So verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So there may be some reward, compensation here on earth. But that's not our main motivation. Consider the slaves and bondservants that this was originally written to. They very likely saw no reward for their work here on earth or very little compensation for their work. And yet they were still called to work and obey. Their motivation was not from their earthly masters, nor is ours. And if this is true for, for slaves, for bondservants, then how much does this shut down our perspective and excuses on why we shouldn't work? I'm not being paid enough. No one will notice if I don't work. What I've been asked to do is unfair. My boss is a jerk. No one there appreciates me. If our motivation is dependent on our circumstances, then these excuses make sense. But if our motivation comes from how the Lord made us and from the promises the Lord gives us, these excuses are complete throwaway. 
God made us to work for His purposes, and He promises reward for the work that we do. Point number two, how we work. So now that we know why we work, the question should be, what does it look like to work? I think there are three main verses in this passage that describe how we are to work. In verse 22, it says we are to work with sincerity of heart. Sometimes translated wholeheartedly or singleness of heart. Verse 23 is very similar. Work heartily with your whole heart, willingly, or with enthusiasm. And verse uh, 4.1, justly and fairly. So how are we to work? We're to give a full effort with all our heart, with excellence. No lack of quality, no cutting corners, no laziness or idleness in our work. We're to be honest and upright, not disingenuous. No cheating, the highest of standards and ethics. We're to be fair and just, particularly to those who we have earthly authority over. I think most importantly, we look back at verse 17, which remember, these are all examples of. How are we to work? In the name of the Lord. We're to work in His name as ambassadors, showing His ways, not our own. So our work should look like how we see Jesus working. We should be following His examples in how we work. He worked with a singular focus. He had a mission. He didn't compromise or cut corners. And his greatest work on the cross, he did completely and perfectly. A work that none of us could ever do. So when people see us working, or they see the product of our work, Our goal should be that in some small way, that points to the work that Jesus did. Our work, how we work, and what we do with our work is a part of our witness to the watching world. So what does your work and how you work say about your Savior? Do you take the care and attention and effort in your work that reflects the care and attention that Jesus took in His work? Do you serve those around you with your work? Your customers, your co-workers, your employees, your boss, your children, your spouse, your fellow students. Do you serve them in a way that reflects how Jesus served those around Him? As we're reading Mark, as, as Tyler mentioned, We get to see Jesus at work. In many ways, Mark is focused on Jesus working in a unique way in the Gospels. And I think it's... I'm struck how even among... While he's working, he still cares for his disciples and cares for those who are following him. So if you want to see how to serve those around you as you're working, read Mark. It's It's a good example. So how we work should look like how Jesus worked. 
Now, I am aware that some of this could hit you and cause discouragement. You could hear this and say, order out of chaos. All I see around me is chaos. I work and I work, and maybe I slow the chaos a little bit, but I don't see order. You see work that is never-ending, and before you can declare a task finished, more work rolls in on top of it. Maybe you're at home, and the messes are never-ending. You clean up and turn around only to find a new mess to clean up. The laundry never ends. There's always someone wearing clothes that will soon be dirty. Maybe you're at a job where things are not well run and where you're unable to make a difference or make a change to see it improve. And your customers or your coworkers are not well served. This morning, I'd want to encourage you that the Lord God does not judge you on your product. He doesn't grade you on what you accomplish today or any day. He is not an outcomes-based God. He is a redeeming God. He sees you. He sees the work you are doing. And He sees it clearly in a way that no one else can. And praise God, He judges you not on the work that you do. He judges you on the work He has already done for you. He redeems work that seems fruitless and futile and uses it for His purposes in ways that we can only imagine. He is a God who sees past chaos and sees our hearts when we are working. He redeems our hearts and puts them to work for Him. He doesn't ask for achievements or results. He asks that we obey Him and that we fear and follow Him and Him alone. And He promises reward for those that are working that no one else sees and no one else rewards. So it's good to know that this is the God that we work for. So final point for whom we work. This passage could not be more clear about who we work for. No matter what you're doing or where you are, you are working for the Lord. Verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. Verse 22, work fearing the Lord. Verse 23, Work as for the Lord, not men. And verse 4-1, addressed to masters, should be a master knowing that you have a master in heaven. Our identity is in the one we work for, not in our work or what we do. So we don't work to please the people around us. Your goal isn't to please your project manager or make a dinner that your children will love. Your goal is to fear the Lord. We don't work for earthly masters. Ultimately, you don't work for your boss or the company whose logo is on your badge 
you answer to a higher master. You have a master in heaven. You work as for the Lord, not men. So who is this master we work for, this heavenly boss? Consider what we know about God and apply it to work. He is not a master who is relying on us to deliver for him. He's unchanging. There's no shifting or unreasonable expectations, no moving targets or short-term demands for this quarter. His purposes and his character are constant. He's always present. He's never offline. He's not multitasking or double-booked. And his door is always open. He knows all. He understands the circumstances and problems surrounding your work perfectly. And he knows the solutions and the paths to complete the work that you need to do. He is good and just and righteous in all that he does. There is no question of ethics or judgment. He is without sin, and he does no wrong. He is love. He cares for you. Not in what you produce or what you've done for him lately. He unquestionably cares for you and loves you at every moment while you are working. He is powerful and active. He's fully engaged in his creation and fully able to act and work. He's gracious and forgiving. He knows we are going to mess up. He knows we have messed up. He knows we will be late. We will be incomplete. We will be inaccurate. He knows we will sin. But he forgives and is gracious. This is your boss. This is your master in heaven. Could we ask for anything more? There's a clear warning in verse 4-1 that if you aren't working for the Lord, if you aren't following Him in Christ, He is still your Master. And His justice and power and knowledge that we've just gone through, those will be brought to bear against you rather than for you. It's really important that we be clear about something else. Our work is not to gain favor from the Lord. Jesus has already done the work to gain the Lord's favor for us. Work that you have no hope or chance of ever doing adequately. Jesus was the only one that could shoulder the load, handle the burden of the work to forgive your sins and unify you with a holy and blameless God. We work for a God that has already done the work for us. We work for a God that has solved our greatest need in the forgiveness of sins. We work for a God that provides us with all the earthly things that we need so that we can put the skills and talents that He has given us to work for Him in everything we do. If, you, uh, if, you, if you've been here for a while, 
you know, one of the things that Matt has taught us very well at is looking at the words at the beginning of a passage of Scripture and what are the words that call, cause us to go back. So if you read that verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It starts with and. That's one of those words that's, that should go, well, what's the, and, what's the first part of that sentence? I've got to go back. So you go back. You go back to verse 15. And let the peace, uh, nope, nope, that's an and. Uh, verse 14, and above, nope, that's an and. Verse 12, put on then, then, that's another go backwards, so i got to go back again. So we got classic Paul here, right? So just a, uh, an entire book that's one thought and a, and a number of run-on sentences afterwards. So I'm doing this, and I'm going back, and you probably could have stopped somewhere, but I ended up back at chapter 1, verse 15. So I'm going to read this. I think we got this to go on the screen, too. So this is Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So in this verse, we see the Lord working in many ways, he's creating. Why did he work? Why did he create? Why does he continue to hold everything together? We're told at the end of verse 18, he does all of this, that in everything, he, meaning Christ, might be preeminent. God works in creation and continues to work today, holding everything together, that in everything, he might be preeminent. And what are we doing when we do everything in the name of the Lord? In the name of the Lord. We're declaring his name. We're declaring what he has done. We are declaring him to be preeminent. We are echoing the work that God did and continues to do that helps to declare that God, that Christ is preeminent in everything. And when we do work in another name, we're declaring something else to be preeminent. If we work to please ourselves, to please others, we're declaring something else to be preeminent. So, church, what does your work declare? Does it declare your greatness or the greatness of our Savior? Does it declare that I need the approval of those around me? Or does it declare that Christ has earned my approval before a holy God? Does it declare that your need for provision, 
that you have a need for provision or that the Lord has provided for your every need? Does it declare minimal effort or shoddy quality? Or does it declare the excellencies of the one who created the glories of the heavens and the earth and gave a full measure to save you from the wrath that you deserve? Does it declare that you are here to run out the clock and collect the paycheck? Or that your inheritance and reward is secure in the Lord? Just like our marriages, our parenting, and everything else we do, our work is meant to declare the preeminence of Christ in all things. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, you made us to work. You made us to serve your purposes, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would give each of us in the work that you have called us to do, in the skills and abilities that you have given us, and the place that you have put us, Lord. You would give us a clear priority for what your purposes are there, Lord. Reveal any adjustment that we need to make in our thinking, how we are believing or practicing about work, and how we are viewing our work, Lord. If there is anyone here who is, feels discouraged about their work, Lord, they see their work as fruitless or futile, Lord, Lord, reveal to them your heart for the work that they are doing, that, that this world may not value, Lord, but that you value immensely. Lord. For all of us, take our work and transform it. Take it and use it for your purposes, Lord, to build your kingdom, not our own, Lord, to build your kingdom that you might be glorified. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.